0: Traditionally, healthcare has run on an old boys club that does not bring in good solutions. If we can build a marketplace where good products actually win and capture a meaningful stake of the value, that is a very positive outcome.
1: Happy Tuesday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I'm your host, Packing McCormick, and Not Boring Founders is a podcast where we talk to founders who are building the future. Today, we have a special guest, Will Manitis, the founder and CEO of Science.io, a company that I've written about before, and, and Will's tweeted about how that one has performed. I think the concept of being able to use data to improve the healthcare experience across a wide variety of the different pieces that it touches really resonates with people. This conversation was particularly fun because not only is Will kind of an expert on his particular industry... But he's done a wide range of things and thought about a wide range of things right now on Twitter. He's going through this phase where he's sharing industrial accidents or espionage or whatever you might want to call it, which has been really fun to to watch that take off. But Will is someone that I trust across a wide variety uh, of industries. I, I always value his thoughts, and I think you'll hear why today on the podcast. But before we do, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's the presenting sponsor of all of season two of Not Boring Founders, FTX US. You've heard of FTX US at this point. Sam Bankman-Fried is one of the youngest self-made billionaires in the world and one of the richest 30-year-olds in the world. He even recently made the Time 100 list. The company that he built, FTX, what they built in just a few short years is astounding. It's one of the platforms that's most trusted by professional crypto traders. And now they're bringing the power to you and me, regular traders, with the FTX app. The FTX app is the most affordable way to buy crypto, NFTs, and even stocks. Recently, FTX announced that you can trade stocks in the very same place that you can trade cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, and even Doge. FTX has the best liquidity and the cheapest fees in the industry for both sophisticated investors and for more retail-focused users who just want to dollar-cost average and buy crypto once in a while. Now, obviously, the market looks scary right now, personally, and this is not investment advice, but personally, I'm just dollar-cost averaging buying a little bit as it goes down and I'll hopefully buy a little bit as it goes up as well. We're huge fans of FTX over here at Not Boring. Incredibly grateful for their support of this podcast and for making this whole thing possible and grateful that they've given you an offer to get started trading right now. If you go download the FTX app in your app store of choice and enter the code Not Boring, you'll get a free coin when you trade $10 worth of crypto or you can just click on the link in the show notes below and it'll do it all for you. So that's the FTX app. Go download it. Go start trading and say thank you to FTX for sponsoring podcasts like this one with Will Manitas from Science.io. Will, welcome to Not Boring Founders. It's good to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. You're currently just living living the nomad life or how's the, the New York apartment search going? Yeah, living
0: the nomad life. I think it is kind of a gently hostile time to move to New York because everyone from the Bay Area has shown up here in the past six months. So still finding apartments, mostly living in the office and really abusing kind of the upper bounds of what commercial real estate is built for.
1: I love it. That's, that's what we look for in, in founders here and not boring. It's just the ability to make weird situations work. So I'm going to start with the, the traditional question that I ask everybody, which is what the world looks like in a decade if you and
0: Science.io are as successful. Yeah, if we're successful, I think the healthcare system will be more connected, transparent, and equitable. I think that sounds pretty lofty, but if you look at the history of healthcare, we've gotten pretty good at one thing, which is generating huge amounts of paperwork, right? Over the last 30 years, I think the only thing that has increased in quality in healthcare is the documentation produced, right? The atomic unit of healthcare is you go into your doctor's office and you tell your doctor a story and they ask you questions. And this is like very effective, right? This is good for care outcomes, but the problem is it's a thing that just does not scale. It's two humans in a room. It's poorly recorded. It's entirely embedded in a culture that is unique to your situation. And if we're interested in scaling healthcare up, we need to make that legible to machines. What happens if you scale the healthcare up? Yeah, I mean, we have no choice, right? It used to be that you had a PCP, your primary care provider, and you would go every six months and you would tell them what was wrong and they'd refer you to other doctors. And that worked, but it wasn't a great healthcare system. You weren't in control of your health. And then COVID and the internet happened and you went from having kind of one doctor to having zero doctors and an online army of services that you'd use for kind of one-off prescriptions, right? We jokingly call this like the balkanization of healthcare because you have God knows what services provider for your study drugs, one for your lifestyle drugs, one for cancer screening, where you're essentially ordering healthcare a la carte off of a menu which means the amount of surface area you have with the healthcare system is just much greater. And that's good for patients, but it's an impossible logistical nightmare on the back end. So what does that look like then when IO is successful? Like, how, How do you help coordinate all of that? Yeah, so at the end of the day, our business is really simple. We have a set of tools that take all the junk that healthcare produces. Think kind of clinical notes, research papers, encounter notes, any paper documentation that exists of you as a patient. And we run that through our APIs and we structure it into formats that computers can actually read. What this means is that you, PACI, as a patient, can suddenly take all of your medical records from all the different services you use, your PCP, your oncologist, god knows what, and turn that into one rich digital representation of you as a patient. We call this the patient 360. And the goal is to have a more accurate representation of you, such that it's both compostable across doctor to doctor to doctor but also compostable to all the different shareholders, your insurance company, you as a patient, and any additional care you might want to receive. So what it means is that you can actually understand a patient in their totality with a machine learning system or any kind of digital technology, right? So a doctor can actually have a chance of understanding what is happening when he comes through the door.
1: This sounds like the dream. What am I doing on the patient side? is there anything that I do actively or is this just kind of all happening? Do I opt in? What's my experience?
0: Yeah. So we don't deal with patients directly, right? We sell to hospitals, we sell to digital health companies, we sell to insurance companies. And the goal is that we're invisible to the workflow. Healthcare providers have too much on their plates already. And if you throw new tools at them, they're simply never going to use them. And that, that is the failure of digital health over the last 10 years is the idea that doctors who already don't have enough time, are going to use 40 different new tools that they have to learn, right? The goal is to be invisible to the workflow. So you and your doctor can have an interaction like you otherwise would, And as a side effect, we're able to have that digitally as a rich representation that we can use across sources.
1: We're in the hospital
0: over the past few days and they're
1: implementing Epic. And one, it was very funny just because there were 50 people running around with like red or neon vests on, like teaching them how to use the systems. But half of the nurses who came into the room were like, I'm so sorry that everything is so slow. We're using this new system. I used to be able to take paper notes, but now we have to like put everything in the system And so it is funny to see that like, you know, there's obviously this this big top-down sale that happens, but then there's a lot of people stuck changing their workflows because of it.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. We essentially chose to move towards electronic medical records before they were mature as a software platform. And now we have these kind of large functional monopolies of EMRs and they're, they're okay software, right? They're functional for what they do, but they're not incredible modern software that's easy for physicians to use. And if you go and talk to physicians, they're spending 12 hours a day in clinic and then going home and coding those encounters for another six hours. Right. And that's a complete mess. It's unacceptable.
1: And it even affects care, right? Like, I mean, when we were getting discharged, it's impossible to find a doctor. Like The nurses were great and always there. It's impossible to find a doctor who's like free to come into your room because either I guess they're seeing all these other patients or they're like sitting at the computer and and inputting, you know, what they've just done. And so it really is like, you just got to sit in the hospital and wait and pay. And, and all.
0: yeah, it's, it's shocking that we've been able to scale the healthcare system like we have without it breaking right for the past, like 15 years, we've been running at probably like 110% capacity of our healthcare system. And in the past three years, we're now running at two three, 400% capacity. And everyone is breaking under the stress Right? Nurses are leaving the field at unprecedented rates. Doctors are burning out and care quality is dropping. Purely because we build a system that's completely unsustainable.
1: So how did you come to this space? Like it's a big, messy, hairy space. When young people come into technology, it's not often into healthcare. What attracted you? Yeah, I
0: spent essentially my entire childhood in hospitals. I was just so sick as a kid and I could seemingly get out of it. I'm relatively healthy now, but like the first 20, 22 years of my life was spent like bouncing in and out of hospital. And if you spend that much time in the healthcare system, you realize that everyone who works in it is fundamentally a good person who's trying their hardest. But the system is horribly broken and the incentives are such that you'll never receive good care, right? So when it was time to to go to a real industry, right? Like I started out working in classics, doing NLP for biblical texts. That was not a thing that was particularly sustainable as a lifestyle. And when it was time to walk away from that, it was pretty obvious that healthcare was a place where good software engineers were not going, right? If I look at my graduating class, most of them are going to either defense contractors or Facebook. No one was going to work in healthcare. You're at best a a middle 50% software engineer. You can have a much bigger impact in healthcare because the best software engineers aren't going here. And I had so much experience with it as a kid that it was just time to make the transition. You skipped over something there pretty quickly, which was that you did NLP on religious text. What was this project? I got very interested in classics as a kid. Like, Latin was my beat when I was, like, 14, 15, 16. And if you, there's a whole branch of computational classics where you can use machine learning techniques, to do things like describe authorship to text, look at cross-text delusion. And the biblical canon in particular is just not a thing that's been particularly well-mined, right? Humans have done kind of the limits of scholarship on it over the past 2,000 years. But computational techniques can find things that were completely unknown. So a lot of my work was spending time taking like huge texts that sat around the biblical tradition and running them through NLP models and discovering what we could find. What'd you find? Not a lot. <laughs> I mean, like definitely we ascribed a probabilistic authorship to a couple texts that I think otherwise would be unknown. But part of the reason I left the field is like I think our best paper from that era was cited twelve times and maybe read thirteen times.
1: So then you get then you get into healthcare. What's your path in? How do you end up founding science?
0: Yeah, I got lucky. When I wanted to transition into healthcare, I just started emailing healthcare CEOs and saying, Hey, I want to work on something that moves the needle with cancer. Something that's affected my life and my family's life pretty intimately. So that was the obvious starting point. And one of the ones that replied was Mike Pellini, who was running Foundation Medicine at the time. And they had just signed a deal with Flatiron Health. So Foundation Medicine was a cancer diagnostics company, essentially sequencing cancer patients to find genomic biomarkers that would inform their care. Flatiron Health had huge amounts of clinical data that they were merging with Foundation's data to build a massive longitudinal data set of cancer outcomes. Coolest big data project ever tried in healthcare. I, I still think about it probably 10 hours a week. And I showed up at Foundation, right, as those deals were getting signed. And it was the first time we had a massive millions of patient sample of healthcare data, right? Showed up and started working on the data and realized that that's how healthcare should be. We should be able to have these massive data sets that help us inform care. And I realized there's very concrete reasons why that could never scale.
1: You just said another thing that I want to double back on, which is that you spend 10 hours a week thinking about it. I always like to see inside the brains of really smart people. Like, what does that look like when you're just randomly thinking about it for, for ten hours?
0: Yeah, I mean that that was the first era where real world data was taken seriously in healthcare. Right? We had hit a patient scale where you could actually get meaningful outcomes from the data we had. Previously, data in healthcare was kind of toy projects on very specific single disease areas, and the clinical genomic database was the first time we could look pan cancer across cancer and actually make predictive outcomes available what would happen to patients because the data set was big enough to do. And no one has done it since, right? There has been no attempts of that scale since. And we spend a lot of time thinking about why and how we can enable kind of more large real-world data projects.
1: What was true about the cancer data that isn't true about other areas?
0: I don't know if it's disease-specific. I think part of it is that that cancer data is just immensely valuable, right? Cancer drugs reimburse at high rates. It's an area of huge unmet need. We have relatively good and biomarkers, both real and synthetic, to make sense of it. And also just Nat and Zach were willing to grind and build a really hard company, right? Flatiron was not an easy outcome. And I don't think people have been willing to try it. Either.
1: Yeah, Zach, I, I have recently discovered is incredibly, incredibly smart and sharp. So yeah, no no surprise that that he built something pretty spectacular. So obviously I wrote about it. And so I'm asking some of these questions for, for the audience's benefit, but describe in more detail how science works today from like the different models that you use and like what comes in and what comes out and then who uses it.
0: Yeah. So we really think of ourselves as being kind of a tower of battle for healthcare information. So what that means is we want to have one model that you can use regardless of what healthcare data you need. So if you need to process a clinical note or a medical claim or a research paper, We want it to be possible that you use the same set of lines of code to process all of those. So we essentially have an API. You go live with us in less than five lines of code. You pipe whatever data you need into that API, and we structure it into a handful of standard ontologies you can actually work with. So think of us as kind of a garbage compactor where you can just kind of throw your data in as it gets your pipelines. And out the other side, it's ready to go in a format you can actually compute. Today, that's being used by companies as disparate as major academic medical centers, like the Mayo Clinic, to digital health startups that are building their platform on top of us, to major insurance companies. So we really think of ourselves as just kind of the middle mile structuring engine that then good healthcare firms can build on top of. And did people have just
1: like, did they hire somebody to just scan a bunch of the paper stuff in, and then also like
0: the digital stuff just kind of comes in automatically? Yeah, it depends. I would say we've got it pretty good at making a lot of this digital native. Like faxes are definitely still a thing in healthcare, but a lot of this is now digital. The problem is it's it's digital with heavy parentheses, right? It's it's PDFs, it's image-based PDFs, it's weird healthcare specific formats, it's telemedicine messages. So even if we have it digital, it's not actionable. Got it. That makes sense. It sounds like you're
1: working with a bunch of different types of clients, just from like a company building perspective. Walk me through the decision to say like, We're going to go after a bunch of different pieces of this puzzle versus going
0: after one really, really hard. Yeah, I think if you think about what it takes to make healthcare data usable, it's kind of a three-mile journey. The first mile is where even is my data? Is it in an S3 bucket? Is it riding on pipes? Like, do we know where it is? And the last mile is like, can I actually go and do something with it? Can I go and inform patient care? Can I go and make business decisions? Can I better underwrite a patient in case of insurance? it was pretty clear that there are many durable businesses built on this first mile that are either selling or moving data. And there are many durable businesses built on this last mile, which are once I have clean data, I actually go and do something with it. But where companies were dying was this middle mile of, I have a ton of healthcare data. I have a very specific use case that I want to build for, and I have no ability to make that translation. And it was clear that we could raise all ships if we just made it easier to develop on top of healthcare data. So we wanted to take the tack specifically of being a dev tool. I think it's like entirely critical that we're a developer first company because we need to be in a place where you can build on top of healthcare data as easily as you could build on top of a CSV. When you say dev tool, I
1: think of an engineer at a startup plugging in Stripe or plugging in linear, plugging in whatever. Healthcare, like are, are there very good devs at a lot of the clients that you're working with or is there something different about building a dev tool for healthcare than there would be for building for other startups?
0: Yeah, I think part of the reason why healthcare has not attracted world-class software engineering talent over the past 10 years is that it's been so hard to get started, right? If you want to build kind of a web app, it's really easy. You download tools off the shelf. Everything works. You can spin up a project in a handful of hours. In healthcare, if you want to build on top of healthcare data, well, what do you want to do to get started? You have to go and hire 500 physicians. You have to put them in an office. You have to have them copy and paste data manually. Two to three years later, you have a data set you then have to figure out if you've built the right data set and then you can go and build an application right i don't think we can blame developers for wanting to not go into healthcare it's been very hard historically the goal for us is to be able to get you to start on the one yard line where you can come in take a bunch of healthcare data that you've collected or generated toss it through the api and have a data set in a handful of seconds once you have the data you can go and use streamlit or whatever like data-driven application you want to build really quickly but historically, it's been a two to four year cold start. Growing.
1: How long do you think it takes to now that you exist? And, you know, Next Health is another portfolio company. Like, now that more people are building to make it easier to build in healthcare, like, how long before there's a wave of people going instead of going to Facebook or de- defense, going into health?
0: I mean, we're already starting to see it. There's a handful of companies that are fundraising right now that explicitly are building on top of us that otherwise would not start businesses. Right. And you can see it through funding activity, right? Andreessen alone has funded hundreds of companies building on top of healthcare data in the past 12, months. Right. You're starting to see, especially now that there's a market downturn, a rush to quality in healthcare because there's so much opportunity here with digital health businesses that are now enabled by software tooling.
1: How much is the market going to look like just, you know, the regular kind of software market now? Are barriers higher or as barriers come down, is it just going to be... 10 companies attacking the same problem competing with each other cacks go up like the whole kind of show plays out Uh,
0: yeah i mean i think there's definitely structural barriers that make healthcare a little more difficult right the work we do is just kind of necessarily more serious than consumer right not even structurally right you have hipaa and other high security requirements that make it a little bit harder to go but you also just are dealing with doctors and humans people's lives Right. So I do think you'll see a, a marginally slower pace of innovation than you would at something like crypto, where the, the stakes are just much lower. Right. I do think there's still significant barriers entry there. I do think we'll end up in a place where it's a reasonably competitive good and the high quality software, but wins. I think we're already starting to see that in a handful of spaces. Scheduling in EMRs is, is the one that's probably top of mind. But we're getting to the point where you can build competitive software businesses here that have a cadence of business that looks like enterprise software. You have to be
1: kind of Switzerland here as the dev tool, but like what are the applications that you're most excited about?
0: Yeah, currently, if you look at the rise of telemedicine, regenerating, we can even set aside the electronic medical record. The electronic medical record is not the source of where all the telemedicine information is. It's in the messages between you and your doctor. And it used to be that you would go to your doctor every six months and just kind of talk. Now you're texting your doctor on a week-to-week basis. That's an incredibly rich data set that could massively inform care, right? So if we can go to all of these telemedicine companies where they have active relationships with their patients, where they're communicating multiple times a week and turn those data sets into real longitudinal day-by-day observational data sets that inform better care, that's a massive opportunity, right? Even in cancer care, the best resolution we might have is kind of monthly, if weekly right? In this case, you have day-to-day resolution of a patient logging their symptoms in text in conversation with the doctor.
1: That's unbelievable. And this might be too early to even tell. But What do you think the differences in care end up being, or how big a difference do you think it makes? How do you see all of that playing
0: out? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that historically we've been very bad at having good longitudinal data on care, right? Medicine is really an art and a science. And if you The amount of times you're seeing a patient is dramatically lower. The care received is just much worse. The other big thing is structurally is patients are just not enfranchised to share what is happening, happening to them, right? Especially across kind of social determinants of health. Patients are intimidated by their doctors when they go into an office and are not sharing things that are meaningful and are getting worse care. So if you open up that surface area where a patient can share more honestly and more frequently. Care outcomes long. I'm just going to keep mining what
1: you're saying because I mean, there's all these interesting paths. Another one that you just said in there is that healthcare is art and science, which is true. Is that necessary, or are we partially because of science i partially because of all these other companies on a path
0: to it just being science. When does that line get crossed? I think we'll always straddle that. I think what's hard about healthcare is when technology people come into it have this idea of like a diagnostic machine, right You come in you're the patient's like, "Oh, I have pain in my kidney, and it's like, oh. That's, we look on a lookup table, we make a diagnosis. It's very rich. The body doesn't behave like that, right? The body is meaningfully, incredibly complex. And what is useful between a doctor and a patient is the doctor's ability to query, right? To be like, oh, describe that to me. Where exactly? What does it relate to? What does it feel like? You could imagine turning that entire thing into a search tree, but it's, it's too infinitely vast, right? What matters is the conversations between the patients and their providers. And we'll always have that.
1: Switching gears a little bit and getting a little more philosophical, I think we first met through Twitter and and here you're just incredibly thoughtful and focused on on science and, and the human relationship between the doctor and the patient. On there, you're this base god. What is your overall worldview?
0: Technological progress hasn't improved our lives as much as it should. I think broadly, the internet has not changed our lives day to day. And if you look around, we could be leveraging technology to live dramatically better lives. And at best, we're building good businesses. And I think we're starting to see that waves change, right? Things like atoms, not bits are happening. But we've created an incredible amount of information technology and have not used it to work on meaningful problems. What are the areas
1: there that, like, you know, if you saw developments being made, you'd be excited that actually technology is improving our lives?
0: Yeah, I think about this in terms of what I would consider hard industries, things like space, things like healthcare, things like logistics. These are boring regulated industries that have traditionally been dominated by kind of mega, mega firms that have been around since the 19 hundreds, right? The fact that we're seeing small sat companies actually start to commercialize today is incredibly exciting. The fact that healthcare has gone digital is incredibly exciting. The fact that businesses like Flexport exist are incredibly exciting, but it's clear we need like a thousand X and more innovation and hard industries than we have today, and we need to take people away from kind of ads businesses other meaningless kind of VC-hyped startups to work on things that actually meaningfully improve lives. Totally. I mean, particularly,
1: I think as I've gone through the stages of, of not boring capital, moving more and more and more to that direction of just like, so what? Like if this company succeeds, who cares? And how does the world get better? And so I'm scared, but bringing people on who are smart, at least to help m- make some of these investments, but definitely moving more into the world of of Adams for that very reason that it feels like you can make such a huge impact. I'm- long bits this is not like a repudiation of what three. i think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there too but like a normal to your point ads business or b2b SaaS business is just like not getting me out of bed in the morning like it was maybe when i was just excited about the idea
0: of startups generally america has competitors now right like if we really believe that our brand of freedom is useful on the global stage we need to make sure we can build companies that can support the continued growth of our country Right. And it's terrifying how much of our strategic resources, which are engineers, developers, et cetera, are going towards app businesses that are best extractive zero-sum game.
1: I couldn't say it better myself. To their credit, Andrewson Horowitz is, you know, and obviously I'm an advisor on the crypto side there, but it feels like they nailed the vibe shift like pretty perfectly with the American Dynamism Fund. I mean, obviously they're joining the the likes of, you know, Lux and and Founders Fund kind of investing in that, in that area, but just naming it and kind of categorizing the industry.
0: Yeah, I think we've been seeing this in healthcare too, is healthcare is a national security issue, right? Our ability to meaningfully interrogate what is happening in the healthcare system and observe care outcomes is critical. If we had this technology, we could have contained COVID much more readily, right? But continued bio-surveillance is a hard problem that almost no one is working on. Do you think that
1: healthcare and supply chain, and like, are there unlocks that unlock kind of all of them? Is it just as simple as kind of somehow figuring out how to incentivize engineers and, and the smartest people that we have to go into those fields? Or are there other common unlocks across those different categories?
0: I think one thing Web3 has shown us is that incentives matter a lot, especially when moving young engineers into a field, right? I think part of the reason why crypto has attracted so many remarkable engineers is it makes the incentives very clear. You can get hilariously rich very quickly by working in crypto for a very short amount of time that has not been true in logistics that has not been true in free that has not been true in space and that has not been true in healthcare right we need to build systems that reward phenomenal work and actually are building on top of them right traditionally healthcare has run on an old boys club that does not bring in good solutions if we can build a marketplace where good products actually win and capture a meaningful stake of the value that was created by us. That is a very positive outcome.
1: Is it just breaking down the old boys club? Or is there some other incentive structure that you can add? Or like, is it just make it as free market as possible? And because the outcomes are so huge, and I mean, space is infinite, healthcare is 25% of GDP, or whatever the number is, like, is it just let the market do
0: its thing fairly, and the outcomes will be big enough to attract people? Yeah, you're seeing a generation shift in healthcare where good products are starting to win, right? Healthcare historically has been a low margin services business that is really, really big, right? It's not that healthcare is a remarkably high margin business. Almost no one is making high margins in healthcare, right? But we have been treating enough patients that at scale, you can build kind of dynastic businesses here. We're getting to a point where people are realizing that software can move those margins to go from bad to dramatically less bad, certainly not software-like. And the next generation of very, very smart healthcare CEOs across hospitals and insurance companies, different care networks are realizing that good products will meaningfully move to the bottom line. And in healthcare, we'll always have the bottom line of both care outcomes. When
1: you think about your business in particular, how do you think about the margin structure? How do you think about the ultimate size of the prize in the market? If you play that piece of the business out 10 years, like what is a really good case for science IO look like?
0: Yeah, right now we are taking away menial work from incredibly highly paid professionals, right? Physician salaries in this country look like software engineering salaries, if not higher, right? You have people that have to go to school for 20, 25 years in order to be able to practice, and we're taking 50% of their time and dedicating it to the worst activities imaginable it is literally dehumanizing. If we're able to take that and make that a meaningfully smaller amount of time, we can dedicate those things to where it actually moves the needle, which is care outcomes. Right. People being healthy is good for everyone. It lowers costs, it is better for the people. If we simply can take physician time and return it to patients, the system works better. The problem is right now we're using them as essentially like click farm workers. If you could take
1: 10% back from the GDP, and back out of healthcare and allocate it elsewhere, which is one of the things that I think is most exciting about making healthcare more efficient, where would you sprinkle all of that extra money?
0: I think we're sitting on a ticking time bomb, which is our logistics system. And we're starting to run into it day-to-day in healthcare. I went to CVS this morning to pick up a pres- prescription that I've been taking for 10 years and found out there's a six-month wait list until that drug will show up again. We have huge logistics problems in drug manufacturing right now, right? Factories simply are not running. Drugs are waitlisted. There are national drug shortages coming and already underway, right? That's going to exist across industries, right? We're at a place where we can see serious societal decline. If we don't solve our logistics problems, that happens in healthcare, that happens in economic productivity, that happens in day-to-day life. Is that a COVID-related
1: thing or what is actually happening in the supply chain that you're not able to get the medicine
0: that you need? Yeah, a huge part of it is just staffing factories, right? Drug manufacturing is a, a task that requires lots of humans. And if you call a drug manufacturers, they're running at like 20% capacity because they can't get people to staff the lines. I think you're also seeing this in shipping, right? With high diesel prices, it makes it dramatically harder to ship profitably. We redirected a lot of strategic manufacturing capability toward COVID. And now that COVID is seemingly reaching its conclusion, we've had a really hard time turning that capacity back to the drugs that actually keep people alive. So it is just
1: the same thing hitting like the restaurant down by street, like just labor shortages everywhere.
0: Yeah, labor shortages everywhere and very poor strategic planning. And is
1: that just a financial solve? Like you pay people more money, plus the strategic planning. Assume that, that now people are going to be more proactive about that piece of it. Is that something you can magic one with
0: money and fix or, or how do you see it getting better? Money is part of it. I also think if you look at kind of other hard manufacturing industries, like Adrian's a great example of this, there are ways to take lower and mixed skill employees and upskill them to work in skilled manufacturing trades. It's pretty clear that there are kind of strategic sobs you can build to drug manufacturing to make it more possible to bring more people into the industry. I think there's a bunch of labor reform that's low-hanging fruit. Like what? Obvious things are upskilling, second chance hiring. It's pretty clear we just need to bring more Americans into the labor force. Yeah. And we are preventing very viable workers from entering it right now due to any number of kind of bad incentive decisions.
1: I mean, the thing that I like about hatred, because I think upskilling helps just as a general concept and and there's things you can do, but the thing that I like most about it is just the idea that, you know, Chris wants to make manufacturing jobs sexy again. And like, it is sexy to show up at work every day and like program machines and work with like, that is a cool job to, to be able to have. And so it feels like there's a lot of different pieces that just need some sort of rebranding almost as like silly as that sounds.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've gutted the middle class, right? We've taken blue collar work and removed any dignity from it, right? And this is the worst possible outcome. We convinced ourselves that kind of IT and computers broadly would provide a job for every American. And it's clear that teaching the entire Rust Belt to code is not real, right? That's always been kind of a Silicon Valley pipe dream. That doesn't even make sense, right? It's important that blue collar jobs actually return to having dignity and employability in this country. Amen. So,
1: I mean, we talked about this vibe shift a little bit. And I certainly see it on on Twitter a little bit more that things do seem to be moving more right. As someone who's voted left and has voted left the past few elections, not super impressed by anything going on there either. But it feels like we're in this weird spot where it's either you have to believe in Donald Trump was not actually that bad and progress or like no progress and Donald Trump is the worst person in the world. How do you see that that whole thing? You're you're thoughtful.
0: I think in general, our political discourse has just gotten completely worthless. We are spending a lot of time obsessing over very small actions by largely checked out political actors while our state capacity is essentially reaching zero, right? It's pretty clear we need serious governmental reforms to be able to be functional as a country again. And that starts, I think, outside of politics. Politics has been too meaningfully captured to be able to get anything done. Right. Politics at this point is entirely downstream of technological progress. And the less time you spend thinking about it, probably the better. Right. There are certain things that remain kind of needing to be solved by politics and are important issues that sit there. But increasing GDP, increasing productivity in this country, returning blue collar jobs are things that raise all ships and don't require working through a political system that is completely antiquated.
1: That seems like a good, a good hopeful note to leave on. Don't wait for the government build things yourself. Will, this has been a lot of fun. Always impressed by you and by what you're building. Thanks for coming on.